Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Sometimes when thinking about Africa, people are going to say, oh, it's the dark continent. It's a continent in which uh, they are fighting every day, dying for starvation, Ebola, Rwanda genocide, uh, civil wars, Mongabe, uh, Obiangema. So we have this kind of ideas in which we're going to say that Africa is just a dark continent in which people are dying of starvation, in which uh, the president is stealing money and the people are not receiving more help. But um, that's why the writers, the creators, we need to show another Africa. We need to like describe the other side of Africa you never heard of. We have a dynamic people. We have a lot of richness because just it's not used, we are suffering of all those prejudices. Has history been unkind to poet, novelist and essayist Rudyard Kipling? Was he an ultra-imperialist? And why should we celebrate him? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. On this week's show, Dr Daniel Carlin unpacks the complex political and emotional life of one of the most controversial poets of the British Empire, Rudyard Kipling. And Congolese writer Alan Mabanku tells me how African writers are creatively confronting prejudice and stereotypes. I think that uh, people are trying to do their best in order to change how Africa is. Africa is suffering because of some people who don't want Africa to move forward. This is a show about truth and belonging, identity and race, craft preconceptions and some terrific playfulness. But first, was the bard of the British Empire, Ruyard Kipling, a bigot? In his introductions to Ruyard Kipling's stories and poems, British literary scholar Dr Daniel Carlin writes, Kipling began as a sensation, almost a scandal. He rose like a rocket and was expected to fall like a stick. He baffled prediction and is still up there but his trajectory has been uneven. He is no longer the fashion, as he was for a few brief years in the 1890s, nor does he command the devotion of the general middle-class reading public, as he did for the first 30 years of the century. The economic and cultural interests of the class have shifted, if indeed it can be said to be composed of the same kind of people. The authenticity and immediacy of Kim are as remote as the Pilgrim's progress. On the other hand, the decline of Kipling's critical reputation has been reversed in recent years. His admirers may cling to the superstition that a drowned man brought back to life won't sink again. Without doubt, Rudyard Kipling is one of the most important authors and interpreters of the British Empire. Born in Bombay in 1865, Kipling was the first British recipient of a Nobel Prize for Literature. And I think it's fair to say it's next to impossible not to think of the British Empire without reflecting on some of Kipling's iconic stories and verse. But why is Kipling no longer in fashion? Has his political views been misunderstood 
are somewhat misrepresented. And how did childhood loneliness, personal hardship and depression shape his writing and creative vision? Professor Daniel Carlin is a Winterstoke Professor of English at the University of Bristol and the author of The Figure of the Singer, Prouse English and Browning's Hatreds. Well, Daniel has just edited Riyard Kipling's Stories and Poems for Oxford World Classics, which I think in some way has rehabilitated or at least put Kipling and his writing into its historical context. Over the weekend, I got a chance to speak with Daniel. I asked Daniel, was Kipling a man of immense contradictions? Well, he himself said that you couldn't be an artist unless you had what he called two sides to your head. And he'd always had that. It's partly a result of his childhood. We might go into that a bit later. But the contradictions and the tensions are what make him such an interesting writer. And they make him a more interesting writer than he is a thinker. So that his ideas on politics, on imperialism, on race, on all kinds of of issues can strike us now as repellent and simplistic and sometimes plain wrong. But when he came to put his ideas into his writing, they get transformed. There's a kind of alchemy that takes place. And the, the stories, the creative work is far more complex, far more interesting and alive today than the bold ideas themselves. And that certainly applies to, to imperialism. Kipling did believe in the civilizing mission of Great Britain, of the, the British Empire. He did believe in imperial responsibility. And he probably also, if pushed, would say that he believed in the superiority of the white race to other races. But those ideas, those simple, reductive ideas, come out in his stories in a quite different, transformed way. You get a novel like Kim, which is deeply respectful, loving of other cultures, and which does not, in any sense, kind of support a British imperialist project in the way that it might be done on a political platform. So, Daniel, do you think it's simplistic to say that he was a propagandist? No, because in part he was and saw himself as a propagandist. He made speeches, um, he wrote kind of articles which were designed to support particular political views. He published in papers which had conservative uh, uh, leanings. But you have to distinguish the different kinds of writing in Kipling. When he wrote as a polemicist, he was if I can use this without necessarily being, he was simple-minded because you see things in black and white in political polemic. When it comes to art, when it comes to stories and poems, it's a different personality, if you like, of the writer. And another side to his head takes over that function. And interesting, you say, Daniel, that England was not and never became Kipling's native land and that the imprint of India was all over his work and essentially permeated his his imagination. Well, this is, uh, we often forget that Kipling was born in Bombay, what we now call Mumbai, 
and his earliest memories, which he movingly describes in his posthumously published autobiography, Something of Myself, are of the fruit market in Bombay when he was a, a little child, the Parsi burying grounds, the little Hindu temples. And he grew up speaking what he calls the vernacular, that is, um, Hindi, and English was his second language. This wonderful story of how his ayah, his governess, used to send him and his little sister down to the drawing room or the dining room to say goodnight to his parents with the warning, speak English now to mama and papa. So he says, we went and spoke English, translating it in our heads out of the vernacular in which we thought and dreamed. He had a very lonely childhood, Daniel, didn't he? I know that he was sent from India to England. I think he was about six and it was a very difficult chapter in his life. He was treated very cruelly and very unfairly and had a very kind of cold-lived existence for quite a while. Is it fair to say that books became his best friend and opened up the world to him in some way? Absolutely, that's the case. And this is one of the most inexplicable episodes in his life. It wasn't unusual for Anglo-Indian families, that's to say families of British people settled in India, to send their children back home to be educated or looked after around the age of five or six. So that in itself wasn't unusual, and Kipling was taken with his little sister back to England at that time. What was so extraordinary is that his parents, loving, affectionate parents who had lots of family in in England who would have looked after these children, took them instead to a boarding house on the south coast of England in South Sea, and not to put too fine a point on it, dumped them there, left them, and didn't really explain what was happening. And Kipling spent the next six years of, of his life transported, if you like, from this paradisal childhood in Bombay to what he came to call the House of Desolation, uh, ruled over by a strongly religiously minded, fanatical Protestant uh, woman with an older son who both bullied this young young boy. And he had six years of almost undiluted uh, misery, what we would now not shy away from calling child abuse. And I've never understood why Kipling's parents did this to him. And I also find it hard to believe, though I know it's true, that he completely forgave them. Yeah, I find that quite hard to believe myself. And while I don't have children, um, my sisters have children, and I discussed it with my twin, that a parent could do something like that and be forgiven. And both of us were extremely appalled, to say the least. But his father worked on his illustrations, I think, on oh, him, yes. didn't he? No, there's no question that, that the relationship with his parents didn't just survive this episode, it flourished. And he he seems not to have blamed them for what they did, but simply to have suffered, to have endured the, the consequences of it. But what you say about reading is just terribly important because the books he learned to read, um, then he was punished for reading on his own, and it became this resource of kind of self-esteem. We would we would now call it, I think, his imagination, his his sense of of self was cultivated through through books, and it's through those formative experiences that he became a writer. He also says, rather humorously, in something of myself, that. Uh, the long practice of lying that he learned in this uh, boarding house in South Sea was also of great service to him as a writer, since after all, that's what writers of fiction do. Um, so he did. That, that was where he learned his craft. 
when you look at some of his novels, they're about outsiders, people who don't belong, people living on the margins. And it it just fed his imagination in so many different ways. But also, I imagine, his depression later in life. Oh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a passion in Kipling for belonging. And also these fantasies of a surrogate family, unlike the one that he was sent to, but a, a surrogate family that will, in fact, nurture you. So the classic example of that, think of Mowgli in the Jungle Books, also, so to speak, abandoned by his parents, but he doesn't find his way to the House of Desolation, but to the den of Mother Wolf and Father Wolf, and he's adopted and, and, and kind of loved and, and nurtured. So right through Kipling's work is this yearning to be part of a community, a family, a tribe, and to have an insider's knowledge of what's going on. And that, of course, was then powerfully reinforced by his becoming a journalist, since that's what journalists do. They, you know, we, we speak of a journalist getting a good story, and a good story for a journalist is always what really happened. You know, what's the real story behind this? You know, the public is being fobbed off with some account, but I know what really took place. And that's fascinating for Kipling. Lots of his stories involve uncovering, like an investigative journalist, what really lies behind a set of events. And so the counterweight to that, of course, is that you never really do belong anywhere. So the yearning, the passion for being part of some, some larger group is coupled in Kipling with the knowledge that the writer is, in the end, essentially solitary and a kind of exile. And Daniel, a good journalist has to listen and also observe. And he learned his trade and this impacted really on how he wrote his books, didn't it? Oh, yeah. And there, there are great uh, anecdotes from later in his life about how he would pump people for information. Uh, he needed information for some story that he was writing. And he could sit down and listen to a, a naval engineer speaking for 20 minutes and a perfect record of that conversation taken without notes, as it were, would later emerge in a story and the naval engineer would read it and think, goodness me, you know, I remember speaking to Mr. Kipling about that eight months ago. I didn't realize that he was soaking it up like a sponge. So he had that the journalist's knack of getting to the heart of a, a technical matter or a, uh, anything to do with an institution. He could master that detail and reproduce it in, in his writing with absolute conviction. Now, Daniel, you have compared him to the likes of Hemingway and Henry James. I know he was a friend of Henry James. I think he was at his marriage or something like that. You say he is, you talk about his narrative skill, his descriptive power, his restless inquisitive nature. Do you think he was first and foremost a journalist, then an essayist, then a critic, then a poet, then a novelist? Well, I think that the connection with James is important because it tells you that Kipling, despite everything that we know about his political views and his partisan attitude to various issues in, in his own time, what mattered to him in the end, more than anything else, as it mattered to James, was art. And in particular, for Kipling, the art of the short story. Uh, he's not that great a novelist. I mean, the only really a finished great novel that he wrote is Kim, and arguably Kim really isn't a novel at all. It's in the short story that he really became one of the supreme masters in, in the language, and there really there are about two or three of them. You know, Captain Courageous as well. Yeah, that's right. And that sort of attention to, to the craft of writing is 
more important in the end to Kipling than anything else, in my opinion. And that's why the writing still matters to us. Because if he were just a propagandist, just a journalist, uh, no matter how good he was at those things, you know, they were, they were two a penny in that period, and none of them have survived. He has survived. Now, Daniel, you say great writers are like great cities. They may be dirty, noisy and crowded with people that you don't like or wouldn't, or wouldn't be happy to live with. But you can't claim to know the country without at least paying them a visit. That made me laugh, but it's very, very true. Oh, it is true. And, and you can't, I mean, I, you know, I, I've been reading Kipling, Man and Boy, as they say. Um, I started, as lots of people,